0: Get iXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off iXL membership when they sign up today at iXL.com slash audio. Visit iXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
1: Hey, y'all. It's Brittany. This has been a rough week. The trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd has brought up every single emotion I got. I know that's happening to my husband. It's happening to like every black person I know. In times like this, it's it's honestly really strange to be a black activist on TV and in the media. You know, my job is to educate and activate folks and I am extremely dedicated to doing that as responsibly as I can. but That doesn't mean it doesn't take a personal toll. Like I sucked back tears just last month when I was on TV to talk about the one year anniversary of the murder of Breonna Taylor and being on TV this week has been no different. Once again, I had to push down my rage and my pain and my grief to get the job done. Y'all, ultimately, I believe that freedom is possible, that it will happen, but that doesn't mean I don't get tired. I'm very tired of the lather, rinse, repeat cycle of police violence. I'm tired of our trauma having to be dragged across every screen in our homes just for somebody to give a damn. I'm tired of folks acting like racism was solved last summer with a black square and a company email. More than that though, I'm worried. I'm worried about the nine-year-old black girl who had to watch George Floyd be murdered. I'm worried about all of the witnesses who are blaming themselves for not doing more to save George from what the police were doing to him. I'm so worried about George's family and this never ending pain they have to continue to endure. And y'all, Even if a guilty verdict comes down in this case, I worry that people will think justice was served. One trial, even one conviction is not justice. There can never be justice as long as the state can kill people. George Floyd should be alive and thriving and that's the sad but honest truth. We're just gonna have to sit with that. We all are and then we're going to have to give a damn. We are undistracted. (laughs) On the show today, the landscape of abortion rights in America. I'll be talking to Alexis McGill-Johnson from Planned Parenthood about the wave of anti-abortion bills being introduced at the state level and just how bleak things are.
2: I think we should be incredibly concerned. There are about 17, 18 cases right now that are literally one step away from the court taking them up. And any one of those could gut Roe, could present an existential threat to Roe.
1: That's coming up, but first, it's your untrending news. First up, friend of the pad and my play cousin, Ayanna Presley, is truly doing the people's work. The Congresswoman has reintroduced a bill aimed at ending the unequal punishment girls of color face in schools. Research shows that black girls are suspended six to seven times as often as white girls, and they are four times more likely to be arrested in school. So Presley's bill, the Ending Push-Out Act, includes $2.5 billion in grant funding for states and schools that get rid of policies that are more likely to target girls of color, like dress code or communication infractions. So often we are told that our hair is distracting, that our bodies are inappropriate, and that we have bad attitudes. We are adultified and seen as women beginning as early as preschool. Seriously y'all, a six year old black girl was once arrested for throwing a tantrum in her kindergarten class. Black girls are suspended all the time for wearing braids. This has got to stop. You cannot criminalize our identity. It sticks with us for life. You wanna know where that school to prison pipeline starts? It starts right there. So let black girls be girls. Stop this mess and keep black girls in school. Now, despite a last-minute veto by the governor, the Arkansas state legislature has voted to pass a new anti-trans bill. Last week, I mentioned how Arkansas is set to become the first state to deny trans children basic access to gender-affirming medical care. Bill 1570 sailed through the state's Republican-leaning legislature, But then, on Monday, Republican Governor Asa Hutchison had a change of heart, mind? I really don't know.
2: I must veto House Bill 1570. The state should not presume to jump into the middle of every medical, human, and
0: ethical issue. This would be and is a vast government overreach.
1: You're damn right it's a government overreach. But also, Hutchinson didn't seem to have a problem with government overreach when he signed the state's near total ban on abortions into law. From where I stand, Hutchinson just wanted to avoid Arkansas being seen as the country's most transphobic state. He wanted his hate filled agenda to, you know, just blend in with the rest of the bullshit. Nevertheless, on Tuesday, the majority Republican state house voted 72 to 25 to override Hutchinson's veto and approve the bill. This is a sad day for Arkansas and it should be a sad day for all of us, but the fight's not over. The ACLU has promised to file a lawsuit to prevent this law from being enforced. Power to all the trans youth, parents, pediatricians, and activists who have been rallying against this cruel anti-trans bill and continue to do so. We love y'all and we see you. And finally, there has been another uprising at the St. Louis Justice Center. This is the second one in the last two months. You all will probably recall I talked to my very good friend Kayla Reed on this show about the uprisings that have been happening at the jail in our hometown. Incarcerated folks are rightfully enraged about the unsafe COVID conditions at the facility, and many are being held pretrial and have to wait on court dates that may not come for the next five years. This past Sunday, about 60 people managed to get out of their cells to protest, and according to reports, they could be heard yelling demands for court dates out of the window.
0: We want court we want court
1: and on Monday, treasurer and then mayoral candidate Tashara Jones wrote on Twitter, "quote There is an immediate need for change in our city's justice system. We need a clear chain of command, and the buck must stop at the mayor's office." Well, a bit of good news, even though we've got a lot of cells and cages to unlock. On Tuesday, my good sis Tashara Jones defeated Alderwoman Kara Spencer in the St. Louis mayoral election. I will be the next mayor of the city of St. Louis because of you. So as Mary J. Blige, the great prophetess once said, believe in yourself when nobody else does. And I believe in St. Louis. Do you believe in St. Louis? She will be the first black woman mayor in my city's history. And Tashara says she'll work immediately to get detainees their court dates and that she plans to restructure the police department and reallocate money to substance abuse and mental health. That's what I'm talking about. That's that righteous representation. Lots more work to do, but Tashara, we know you're gonna get it done. Coming up, I'll be talking to Alexis McGill Johnson about the rapidly growing threat to Roe versus Wade right after this short break. And we are back. Well, headlines are already calling 2021 the year of anti abortion legislation. State lawmakers have already introduced more than five hundred bills restricting the procedure. It's clear that anti-abortion politicians are now more emboldened than ever and they have their eyes set on a Supreme Court showdown. My guest today says that abortion access is hanging on by a thread. Alexis McGill Johnson is the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood, which just released a new report detailing the skyrocketing number of anti-abortion bans taking place in states across the country. Sure, now we have a president who's in favor of abortion access, but it's a problem that he has yet to actually say the word abortion. So what the heck is going on? Where do we go from here? This, this is an important issue and I needed to talk to Alexis about it. Alexis, thank you so much for joining us and for having this critically important conversation.
2: Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Brittany. Thanks for having me.
1: I want you to set the scene for us. So if you could just kind of sum up, what's the landscape of abortion rights in America right now?
2: Look, the the state of abortion rights in America right now is dire. You know, we have seen um, a tremendous increase in restrictions and bans, and we are obviously very concerned about the landscape right now.
1: You even said that abortion access is hanging on by a thread.
2: Yes, yes, by a threat.
1: That's that's rough. That is indeed dire. And it's been a wild year. There's understandably uh, been a lot of focus on COVID-19. We've obviously had a very necessary national and international reckoning on systemic racism. So in some ways, perhaps the issue of abortion has gone under the radar for some people. What's really been going on?
2: Thanks for bringing it back to COVID and the reckoning on race and the economic downturn because I think all of those things are actually at the at the intersection when we talk about access to something like like abortion which mm-hmm. we remind people is actually healthcare <laughs> surprise surprise and you know we saw this at the beginning of COVID there were a number of restrictions that the GOP led governors and state legislatures put into place immediately during COVID to restrict access to abortion. And we saw the impact, right? People were in the process of sheltering in place. They were obviously concerned about the impact of COVID on their own healthcare. And then instead of saying abortion is a time sensitive, safe medical procedure, they limited access, uh, in some cases, forcing people to travel out of state, risking COVID themselves, risking spreading COVID to other people, just in some cases to access medication abortion. So it's just a a couple of pills that one would take to terminate Mm. within the first eight to 10 weeks. And so it is striking how intense and laser focused so many state politicians are in trying to restrict access and to really set up, you know, a core fight around access to Roe broadly for this country.
1: And when you talk about that intense focus, just to put it clearly for folks, we're talking about more than 500 abortion restrictions that have been introduced in 44 states this past year.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, I'd also remind us, Brittany, that these are these are many of the same states where voting rights restrictions are being passed. They're ones where you know anti-LGBT bans are being passed. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't be surprised with a great majority of what's happening in these states. But but yes, I do think you know as I said earlier, like abortion sits also at that intersection of understanding race, economics, and healthcare um, because you know our communities are going to be the ones who are most impacted.
1: Uh, you know, I'm never really surprised by white supremacy, and we'll we'll get <laughs> well, into that in a little bit. But first, I want I want to get into the main findings of this new report from Planned Parenthood. What does the research show?
2: Well, it shows, you know, as you mentioned, medication abortion restrictions and bans have tripled. Anti-abortion constitutional amendments have more than tripled. And I think what it says is that we are in the middle of a state legislative season that is shaping up to be one of the most hostile in recent history, particularly with respect Mm. to to reproductive health rights. And I think that these electeds are emboldened, quite frankly, by Justice Barrett's confirmation to the Supreme Court, by the remaking of the federal judiciary under Trump and McConnell. And they are feeling, I mean, they're not even hiding it, right? Governor uh, Hutchinson in Arkansas was 100% clear. He is signing this into law so he can directly challenge Roe. Mm. And they're emboldened and they're they're being really clear.
1: I mean, and when you really dive into some of the details, they are wild. I mean, the lawmakers in Tennessee who introduced an anti-abortion bill that would allow men to veto the abortions of their partners or former partners. is crazy. Yeah. I mean, like, what in the world? There's the one in Arizona that would prosecute people for homicide for having abortions. And then you mentioned Arkansas, which just passed a law banning abortion, even in cases of rape or incest. I honestly cannot believe that this is happening in 2021. Like, are we living in some kind of handmaid's tale nightmare? Like, this is Gilead.
2: A hundred percent. Look, and like you said, we can't be surprised about white supremacy. We can't be surprised around uh, this last gasp of patriarchy either, Mm. right? I mean, and misogyny and misogynoir, right? I mean, like, it is literally about wrestling with historical control of our bodies, our reproductive systems, our ability to choose freedom and our imagination. So no, it is extreme. And the fact that there is no state where access to abortion or supporting access to abortion is not supported in the majority, right? Every single state supports access to majority under row. Right. And so clearly it's a small group of largely white male legislators who have wrestled control of power, very vocal minority that controls the levers of powers in these states that are is creating these bans consistently, completely out of touch with their own public opinion.
1: You cannot be surprised at what happens during the last gasp of patriarchy. That is a word so, the strategy is a direct line from state houses to overturning Roe versus Wade. How concerned should we be?
2: I think we should be incredibly concerned. There are about 17, 18 cases right now that are literally one step away from the, the court taking them up. And any one of those could gut Roe, could potentially present an existential threat to Roe. And at the same time, like not taking one of those cases like the Supreme Court doesn't actually have to adjudicate. They could actually not take one of those cases and let a law stand that then would basically make Roe meaningless. Right. You know, and I mean, look, we have to talk about what it means, right? If Roe is overturned, right? It it means that the federal protections are gone. It means that the states, you know, get to make this determination and so 25 million uh, women of reproductive age would be impacted. They would be living in states that would not have access to a, a provider and would have to travel out. That is why it is alarming to see the number of constitutional amendments in states tripling over the last few months because they understand the impact. And, like, I want to be 100% clear like, our reproductive justice partners have always said, Roe is the floor. Mm -hmm. right? It's not the ceiling. It it is a right, but we still are fighting for access in all of these other ways um, that particularly impact, you know, BIPOC communities and low income communities and trans communities. And so like the strategy is clear because they have the courts. And I think, you know, our fight back is what we have to focus on.
1: So let's, dive into what's happening at the federal level. I- I'm really curious about how you would characterize the Biden administration's stance on abortion rights. Like, What has he done so far?
2: He has repealed the global gag rule, right? Which impacts um, access to abortion resources abroad. He has set into motion the, the rules changing around the Title X domestic gag rule, which has prevented providers from sharing information about abortion. Um, he has, you know, has work to do in talking through things, uh, actually, Saying the word abortion. I'm just gonna say it, right? Yes. Like to actually <laughs> using the language and being really clear in his executive orders, you know, because he he's got the bully pulpit, right? And so the power of the White House, the power of the presidency to normalize and destigmatize abortion, I think is one of the most important things that he should be thinking about. He could actually spend some capital on repealing Hyde. Mm-hmm. You know, the Hyde Amendment bars folks from using their health insurance to access safe and legal abortion. And so I think it is really important. We saw that the American um, rescue plan actually passed without additional Hyde restrictions. He can issue a clean budget that does not have Hyde in it and make sure that we don't become a bargaining chip in negotiations. So there's a lot that Biden can can do in this moment, and um, that's what we're going to be pressing on.
1: There's a lot that he can do. And I'm glad that you made this point about the bully pulpit, because it has struck me that he prefers to use terms like reproductive health or the right to choose or health outcomes instead of saying abortion, which, to your point, can just reinforce an abortion stigma all the way from the White House we also know that President Biden is is a devout Catholic. And there are stats that show that the majority of people who have abortions are religious. I am a pro-choice person of faith. How much do you think his faith is at play here?
2: Likewise, I am also a person of faith and I support, you know, access to abortion. And his faith may be at play for sure. I'm sure that's how he would articulate it um, in many many ways. And yet, you know, the the majority of people of of most faiths actually do support access to sexual and reproductive health care, including abortion. And so it should not prevent him from actually using the word. It shouldn't actually prevent him from ensuring that the language that he uses doesn't stigmatize people who are seeking access. And that's just people who are seeking access. It's stigmatizing providers. It's stigmatizing... Communities in ways in the ways in which he is not lifting it up. And so I think there's a lot that he could be doing. And, you know, I appreciate the faith point. I don't think it's sufficient.
1: So let's get into the real the the, the meat of this. You've stated before that these abortion bans and restrictions are escalating as quote, part of a larger agenda rooted in white supremacy. Like, how so? C- connect the dots for people. Make it plain
2: white supremacy is ultimately about reinforcing racial hierarchy and patriarchy and misogyny. And what we are seeing is a group of largely white male legislators in states where acts to abortion is actually popular, but they are using their power to control the bodies of largely people of color. They are 100% clear that they don't even worry about the political impact of making these decisions because they feel that they can get away with it because of the impact is, is, is largely on people of color. It's like COVID. Like, I don't need to wear a mask because mm-hmm. it's only black and brown people who are dying. Mm. Why am I worried about that? Right. That's white supremacy in action. And I think we're seeing the same things play out where they're using access to abortion to whip up their religious evangelical base where access to abortion um, originally became an issue when they were fighting over issues of white supremacy and, and segregation. Yeah. So you can't disentangle white supremacy as it relates to abortion rights.
1: Your predecessor, Cecile Richards, was on the the podcast, actually our first episode, and she talked about how white supremacy and patriarchy are twins that grew up together. And you are (laughs) making it plain in the same way, right? And these twins continue to spawn more and more. That's why we see these anti-abortion bills, as you said earlier, be pushed alongside these other aggressive bills around voting rights, targeting the LGBTQ community. These are all things that disproportionately Harm marginalized people. Absolutely. And I'm sure that is deeply relevant to you in your work always, but especially as a woman of color running a reproductive rights organization. You know, I, I know you probably understand firsthand how misogyny and racism and the anti choice movement's quest for power are all just deeply interconnected in that way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Look, and I mean, and you know, I'm working with my team to, you know, to do the work of a of an organization that's also 104 years old, right? That is also grown up in in uh, that twin of white supremacy. That also has to do the work to really build equity uh, policies inside of our own infrastructure. So, like, I'm, I'm fighting inside outside every day to make sure that we can show up in the best way for our patients, right? I mean, I think like that's ultimately what it is. I also think that when you look at who our patients are as a critical part of the public health infrastructure, they may come to us for access to abortion. They may come to us for access to family planning, gender affirming care, but when they leave, they are also subject to these other impacts of white supremacy, right? They may get pulled over by a police officer. ICE may show up on their job. They may be um, housing insecure or, you know, more likely to get COVID or less likely to get the vaccine because of historical healthcare mistreatment, right? And Mm -hmm. so sitting at that intersection and understanding really how White supremacy shows up it, healthcare broadly and externally is, is really important for an organization like Planned Parenthood to think about what it can possibly do to address it.
1: You've also talked about how the fight to ensure that everyone can access abortion is inextricably tied to, you know, really a broader fight for human rights. And of course, that that sounds right, but can you spell it out for us a little bit more? How are abortion rights human rights?
2: Yes, and and look to come back to you know our twins, uh, white supremacy and patriarchy, right? I mean, like what upholds white supremacy is dehumanization. That is the strategy, right? Telling people that they are less than if they are uh, LGBTQ, less than as a you know member of a BIPOC community, they are not human if they are trans or non-binary, and I think that that to me, the first fight is really around restoring that humanity. And that is actually a fight around justice, right? That is a a fight around making those claims on humanity. And then I think that freedom fight is really about restoring the rights because you can't confer rights. You can't confer freedom on people that you don't think are human. Mm. And so, you know, abortion rights are part of conferring a right to control your own self-determination. Your bodily autonomy is about your ability to make choices that will help you execute on your own imagination for what you want to do and who you want to be and how you want to live your life in your community. And so abortion rights just sits right in there. I think it is actually the ability to control your body is one of the most critical expressions of freedom. So on the
1: one hand, we've got Democrats now controlling both houses of Congress and the presidency. On the other hand, we know we've got a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. What do you think the future holds for abortion rights in this country? How do you think this fight is ultimately going to play out?
2: You know, look, I, we are in it for the long game, Brittany, right? I mean, it is what we're seeing now in 2020 is a direct result of what we saw in 2010 when they gerrymandered not just the Congress, but they also gerrymandered all of these state houses. And I keep saying, like, 2021, we're in the locker room, it's halftime, mm. we're coming out, you know, for the next 10 years because, yes. Both Congress and our White House are pro-sexual and reproductive health majorities, and we are working incrementally to issue change, whether that is from Title 10 to fighting to make sure that we can repeal, hide. All of those things are going to be tactical plays over the next couple of years. We have to think about how we force people to spend political capital on that. But the longer term arc is really towards 2030. It is really shoring up our majorities in these states, you know, where denying abortion rights should be seen in the same way that people are being denied voting rights. They're denied rights to express themselves as a part of a trans community. Like All of these things, I think, are very connected And our work is to broaden the movement to make sure that we we can link arms and fight in that way, because that's the only way that we actually are able to build the power to change the rules back, to engage in meaningful democracy reform that actually is really going to undergird all freedom.
1: The power comes in locking our arms together and getting this done. Alexis, thank you for being one of the many impactful voices leading that fight. And I'm, I'm right there with you. Thanks so much for your time.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Alexis McGill-Johnson is the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. The ability to control your body is one of the most critical expressions of freedom. Yes, Alexis, yes. There is nothing more important than our ability to have full agency over ourselves, whether or not that's about ending police violence and state-sanctioned murder, or the ability for people who get pregnant to be able to make their own decisions about their own bodies. It is why, especially as a Black woman of faith, I am unapologetically pro-choice. My ancestors fought too hard and too long for me to be able to control my body. And I won't turn back. It's also not lost on me that the so-called pro-life movement began because segregationists who lost their original white supremacist fights, they picked up abortion as a way to expand their coalition. Nor is it lost on me that the same folks screaming pro-life are often the ones who yell blue lives matter when the police kill someone. So we've got to link arms and keep fighting for our human right to self-determination. Nobody's free while there are bans on my body or anyone else's. That's it for today, y'all. But never ever for tomorrow undistracted is a production of the meteor and pineapple street studios our lead producer is rachel matlow our associate producer is taylor hosking thanks as always to treasure brooks grace chen and hannis brown our executive producers at the meteor are cindy levy and myself and our executive producers at pineapple are jenna wise berman and max Blinsky. You can follow me at Miss Pacchetti on all social media and our team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate and review us, please, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you check out your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being. And thanks for doing. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Let's go get free.